0: David Ben-Gurion, Israel's first prime minister, once said that in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. In order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. And he said this because, as we've talked about last week There's no human explanation for the way that Israel has been preserved over the last 2,000 years with uh, all of the opposition, the persecution, the attempt at genocide uh, that they faced, and not to mention not just surviving it, but actually being reestablished and flourishing in the land uh, again, and being even not just internationally recognized, but actually being a global leader in many areas of life, of science, and and farming, and uh, just a lot of different things. They are, I can't remember the percentage, you know, 22% of, I think it is, Nobel Prizes go to Jewish people. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing. Uh, No other people in the history of the world have done that. And the restoration, though, that we've seen already is not complete, and... Neither are the miracles. The scripture points to a fuller future restoration of ethnic national Israel. And we've already talked some time ago about their future from the prophets as we worked our way through the prophets, but we're going to discuss it a little bit further today. We've looked so far at Israel in the past, mostly. But today we're going to look at Israel in the present and Israel in the future. So Israel in the present, we see two things. That Number one, God is active today preserving and protecting the Jewish people. Again, Jeremiah said, you know, if you want to destroy the Jewish people, all you got to do, it's real easy. you got to pull the sun, the moon, and the stars out of the sky. That's all you got to do. Okay? But we talked about that last week. Secondly, though, God is presently saving a remnant of Jews. God is presently saving a remnant of Jews. A lot of people, even in Paul's day, the Apostle Paul's day, in the first century, wondered if God was done with the Jewish people since they'd nationally rejected Christ and so many Jews had become hostile to Christians and to the gospel. And in Romans 9-11, through Paul addresses that. Romans 11, through 5 says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Paul, a Jew, presents himself as living proof, evidence that God is not done with the Jews. He's saying, God's not done with the Jews, look at me. I'm a Jew. I'm saved, right? I believe. He also mentions In Romans 11, 1 through 5, how God preserved 7,000 men in Elijah's day who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Remember, Elijah comes away from that Mount Carmel moment, and uh, he says, I'm basically alone in this, right? I'm the only one who's faithful in Israel. And God says, "Uh, I don't think so. I've reserved 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul concludes from that, he says, there has also come at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So the majority are hardened to the gospel, but a remnant are coming to know Christ, and they always have been. Actually, statistics say more Jews are coming to Christ today than ever before. But in Romans eleven, eleven, he says this. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Has Israel... Uh, I should say, did they up there? But has Israel fallen beyond recovery? He says, Meganointa again. May it never be. That's the strongest negation in Greek. That's Paul's way of saying, no way, Jose. Hey, not going to happen. Can't happen. He says, but if by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And if their transgression is riches for the world and failure, their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? If their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When I read that, every time I read it, I can't help but think of Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And if you did your homework this week, you know what I'm talking about. He's talking about a national regeneration followed by a spiritual regeneration of the house of Israel. The exiled house of Israel coming back together in the last days as a nation and experiencing regeneration and entrance into the new covenant. And Paul speaks of their fulfillment. He speaks of their acceptance in Romans 11. And so basically the point is they've stumbled, but not in a way that is impossible to rectify. They haven't stumbled so hard that they can't get back up. And I'm going to do a lot of summarizing here for the sake of time, but closer to the end of the chapter, verses 17 through 24, Paul speaks about their being grafted back into uh, God's program, essentially. Right now Israel has been set aside as the primary means of putting himself on display in the world and reaching the world with his word. Uh, The church is primarily being used today, mostly Gentiles, right? But that place of blessing that we have right now is not, number one, it's not complete. Number two, it's not permanent. It's not a complete, uh, like, replacement, and it's not permanent we might say it's not complete because israel think about this put your theological hats on israel even in her spiritual insensitivity her hardness to the gospel is still being used to put god on display how are they putting god on display because he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do so even in their hardness you see god just doing his thing he exactly what he said would happen is happening Now, secondly, their national reestablishment defies all odds or possibilities. It doesn't make sense. Like I said, no other nation in the world has done this. But here they are, right? And so one of my professors said her existence is manifest, deliberate, compelling evidence that God exists. And I would also say it's not permanent because Paul keeps hinting at this regrafting re-grafting acceptance he talks about them getting back up he talks about a removal of the hardening that's going to happen and that's where we switch gears to the future of Israel in verses 25-26 through of Romans chapter 11 Romans 11 he says I don't want you to be uninformed brethren of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Right? Church, don't get proud thinking that you've replaced them for good and forever and all of that. He says, I don't, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening, see it's not a complete hardening, it's a partial hardening, there's a remnant being saved. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, Paul will go on to talk about, verses 28 through 32, how, yeah, they're enemies for your sake, from the standpoint uh, of the gospel, because... You know, you guys, Christians, you experience a lot of hostile, hostility, opposition to the gospel from Jewish people, right? You see that played out in the book of Acts. But he also says, watch out, because from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved for the sake of their fathers. And he says, you were shown mercy, and now they have been hardened so that they will eventually be shown mercy. Okay, so mercy is coming. Israel means Israel before this passage, Israel means Israel after this passage, And uh, a lot of people recognize that, no matter which side of the theological camp you're on. But uh, Paul mentions this mystery here. What's the mystery? That the Gentiles could be saved is not the mystery. Gentiles could be saved in the Old Testament. You ever read Jonah? Right. Ninevites. Those awful Ninevites, right? Uh, So that's not the mystery. Uh, That Israel would be regathered and experience a spiritual regeneration wasn't a mystery either. Those are both painstakingly made clear in the Old Testament. I think what's mysterious, even surprising, in the Apostle Paul's day is that their acceptance would come after a period, a time period of great Gentile salvation while Israel's hardened. So they didn't see that coming. I don't think they, anybody saw this Jewish national rejection of Christ coming or the church age that we're living in as it is. I don't think people saw that. And that's the mystery, that there was going to be a great period of Gentile salvation before that uh, regeneration of Israel would happen. So rather than at the first coming, it happens at a second coming, they totally missed, a lot of them, that first coming of the suffering Messiah. So uh, at the present time, God's primarily using the Gentiles, us, and we shouldn't get proud as to think that we deserve this or that uh, God's done with Israel. Their hardening against the Messiah is partial because God's saving a remnant now, and it's temporary. Um, It's a partial hardening that has come until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul quotes Isaiah 59, 20 here, this whole talk about all Israel being saved at the second coming, um, the whole house of Israel, or all Israel. And this is an Old Testament expectation. You need to know this. This is... uh, I don't know, maybe one of the sins of our day is just the neglect of the Old Testament prophets. And uh, <laughs> I ain't pointing fingers because they're hard. There's a lot of it there. So, um, but we would do well to pay attention to the Old Testament prophets. And, uh, because they, they talk about this idea that there's going to be a great salvation of Jews when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom on earth. You find this in Ezekiel 20, 40, 37, 11, 39, 25. Just to name a few, this language about all Israel, um, Ezekiel 20, we'll read a couple of passages here. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, God surely, uh, with a, yeah, you might need to get your bifocals on or your binoculars for this, but uh, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples, gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. I will make you pass under the rod, so there's a winnowing that takes place, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant and I will purge the rebels and those who transgress against me. Later, latter days type of stuff, later you will surely listen to me. And my holy name you will profane no longer. There the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. Ezekiel 39, 25-29 says that after this uh, great uh, Gog and Magog war, that war of the end times, where nations gather against Israel to destroy them. Uh, This is what it says right at the end of this war. It says, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they have perpetrated against me, and when they live securely in their own land with no one to make them afraid. Today, I don't know if you know this, but an IDF soldier lives with his gun. They can't not be within reach of their gun at all times, 24 7. Um, They eat with it on their lap. They sleep with it like it's under their pillow. Uh, They live in fear constantly because everybody hates them, right? They're neighbors, they're surrounded by enemies. Well, He says, when I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations, and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. right. How awesome is that? Think about this. There's it's you know what it is? It's so plain and straightforward that it's hard to believe, isn't it? There's gonna be, this is gonna be one of the most God-glorifying moments in all of history, I believe. I think people are gonna witness this physical and spiritual deliverance of Israel and say, you have got to be kidding me. He's that faithful to his promises? After all this time, after all that they've done, after all the treachery that they've perpetrated against him, wow, what a God. What a big God who knew what he was doing the whole time. Ezekiel says, he will magnify himself in the sight of the nations through them and through that Gog and Magog war. So, right now, a remnant is being saved. In the future, we see near the Lord's return, Israel experience a great salvation. But what about between now and then? What about between now and then? Well, we're not going to touch on it in every detail, but probably more detail than most people are used to. I broke this down into a few elements. Number one, we see a prophetic clock, seven years of tribulation for Israel. The Bible talks about a future time of global tribulation where God pours out his wrath on an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. This is a period that is unprecedented, and and the prophets spoke about it, the New Testament talks about it, Revelation 6-19 through is all about this time period. Wrath being poured out. And uh, if when, you read a, when you read it, okay, the, you'll, you might pick up on the very Jewish nature of the tribulation period. Events are centering around Jerusalem and Israel. Again, you have 144,000 Jews who get saved at the beginning of the tribulation period. And they're called the first fruits, which I think they're the first fruits of that period, the tribulation period. Period. And we shouldn't be surprised by the Jewish nature of it all because Jeremiah 30 verse 7 calls this what? The time of, some of you guys know this, the time of whose trouble? Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Um, it's a doctrine for another time, but this is just one of the main reasons why I am a, believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because God picks up his program with Israel again. Not to mention I'm that way because I'm exegetically convinced from the text. But Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is the backbone of Bible prophecy. It reveals seven years left on Israel's prophetic clock. Seven years left yet to come. Uh, Antichrist is going to make a covenant... This uh, global world leader is going to rise, and he is going to make a covenant with the Jewish people for seven years. The Jews are going to rebuild the temple and get it running again, start offering sacrifices again. And this is what the Jews have longed for, right, since A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed. They want to build their temple again, and they can't because you've got that Dome of the Rock, sitting, that mosque, uh, sitting right where they need to build the temple, and they just can't make that move politically right now, right? And so I think this global, satanically-inspired, end-times ruler is very likely the one who's going to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. He's going to pretend to be their hero. He's the one who's going to bring peace to the Middle East, finally. And interestingly, there's a group in Israel today Called uh, the Temple Institute, who are just waiting for the word. They're just waiting for the go ahead to build the temple. They have the menorah, they have the priestly garments, they've got the blueprints. They're just waiting for someone to come along and say, okay, you can rebuild that temple. The Temple Institute has this on their website. They're, the Temple Institute is dedicated to all aspects of the divine commandment for Israel to build a house for God's presence, the Holy Temple, on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. That's the spot. Our goal is firstly to restore temple consciousness and reactivate these forgotten commandments. We hope that by doing our part, we can participate in the process that will lead to the Holy Temple becoming a reality once more. If one-third of all the Torah's commandments center on the temple... It would seem that biblical observance in the temple's absence is but a skeleton of what God had intended it to be. So, uh, I think that's fascinating when it comes to Bible prophecy. And the reality is, with modern construction, boy, that, they can get that steel building up in a hurry, right? Uh, no, i do not going to be a steel building. But they can get that thing up and going in no time. I just throw it out there because it's interesting. But secondly, letter B, Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel halfway through the seven years. In the middle of the time period, uh, three and a half years, you see in in Revelation, there's talk about 1290 days, three and a half years. He's going to break his covenant and desecrate the temple by demanding worship of himself in it. Uh, He claims to be God, demands worship of himself in this Jewish temple that he allowed them to build. And so you see he had an ulterior motive the whole time. But Matthew twenty four fifteen, and 2 Thessalonians 2 talk about this. In Matthew twenty four fifteen, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Get out of Dodge, basically. For then there will be great... Tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So halfway through the tribulation, things escalate rapidly, especially for the Jews, whom Antichrist is seeking to destroy. And this is going to be deja vu all over for them, because in 167 B.C., during the days of the Second Temple, Antiochus Epiphanes, the fourth, a Greek ruler whose name means God manifest, uh, epiphanies, manifest, he came and set up an altar to Zeus in their temple. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar. That's a big no-no. He slaughtered a number of Jews, sold them into slavery, and forbid Jewish Practices like circumcision. And this is when you see the Maccabees rise up and revolt against this, this, uh, this Gentile power. And according to Jesus, Antiochus was just a precursor of the ultimate abomination of desolation to come. Of the Antichrist who's going to come. 2 Thessalonians 2 says that the Antichrist is the man of lawlessness the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. So in Christ, it says, if you finish out the rest of that passage, it says Christ is going to come at his second coming and without so much as lifting a finger. He will destroy this satanic ruler global ruler. That's how intimidated you have to be by the Antichrist. God can destroy him with a word of his mouth kind of thing. So, let's remember who's in control here, right? Uh, I want to remind us that at this point that none of these prophecies, and we're going to look at more, none of these prophecies, I'm just saying, make any sense. They don't make any sense if you number one don't have a straightforward, literal, non-allegorizing, non-spiritualizing hermeneutic or method of interpretation. They don't make sense if you try to fit them into the here and now and the first coming. And that's what a lot of guys tried to try to do. Um, But secondly, it doesn't make any sense these prophecies without secondly a restored national Israel on the land, including a temple. So that's part of the relevance of the modern state of Israel. It just Things just seem to be heading that way. And letter C is that we're going to see increasing anti-Semitism, and I might even add to that anti-Zionism. One of the main purposes for the tribulation period is to bring Israel to her knees, in repentance, so that she looks to Christ to save her. And much of this is going to come through persecution. The tribulation is like a terrible kindness designed to return their hearts to the Lord. How many? How, he always works that way, doesn't he? Sometimes in our lives, some of you guys came to Christ because of some sort of terrible kindness in your life. You, it was cancer, it was a divorce, it was something awful in your life. Uh, a time of loneliness where you said lord i need you okay and and that's what prompted you to return to him with a contrite heart and in shedding of tears i hope you know that's that's what's going to happen to israel during this time when plainly understood this understanding the scriptures they're going to face unprecedented persecution zechariah 13 verses 8 through 9 says that two-thirds of the Jews will perish during this period. At least, think about that. So, during the Holocaust, two-thirds of European Jews perished. We're talking about a global perishing here. If that's what Zachariah is saying. Revelation 12 talks about how Satan, who realizes he's running out of time, halfway through the tribulation period is going to turn his aggression against that woman Israel. Uh, that the breaks the covenant type of thing, and Israel's gonna flee to the wilderness, just like Jesus said. And they're gonna have a place prepared by God in the wilderness where she's gonna be nourished for 1,260 days. So this is getting into some finer details, but uh, there's a hand, more than a handful of texts, that talk about Israel being saved in the wilderness, conveying the idea they fled Jerusalem, they fled Judea. And they're in the desert south and east of Israel. Uh, You've got Isaiah 19, 1, Ezekiel 25, 31, Hosea 6, 1. There's these references in your notes. I just want to read a few of them, though, or reference a few of them. Ezekiel 20, verse 35, we already read it. It said, I will come face to face with you in the wilderness. With Israel in the wilderness, they're going to come face to face with him. Jeremiah 31, 2 says the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Isaiah 34, verse 6 and 8 say the Lord is going to satiate, he's going to saturate his, blood, his sword with blood in the area of Basra and Edom. South and east of Israel, Micah 212 through 13 mentions the gathering of the remnant of Israel in Basra. Zechariah 9 talks about the Lord protecting them and making the nations drunk. It says uh, he's going to march in the storm winds of the south. Isaiah 63, we'll read this one, it is a lengthy one, but he, it says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. Who do you think is talking here? I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the days of vengeance, the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked. And there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Who's that talking? That's Christ, isn't it? Cross-reference that with Revelation 19.13. Jesus comes and his Garments are stained in blood. Whose blood is it? Is it his own? It's the nations that he's crushed who have been pursuing Israel. This is the warrior Messiah, the horse, white horse rider of the second coming. He's not the gentle, lowly, donkey-riding Messiah of the first coming. He comes to pour out wrath on the nations. Reconciling these desert passages with Zechariah 14, I think we can, in which Zechariah 14 says Jesus' feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives when he comes again, and he's going to split that mountain in two. But when you try to reconcile all of these desert passages with the Zechariah 14 passages, I think it's, I think we kind of pick up on this, uh, Uh, Idea that he's going to come indirectly to the Mount of Olives from the wilderness in the south after saving Israel by himself because there's no one else to save them at that point. Not even the United States. That's letter D, the salvation of Israel by Christ alone. So, to finish this series... I want to walk us briefly through Zechariah 12 through14. This passage deserves an extended time of study, but we're going to rush through it. Uh, someone once said, "Don't announce your eschatology until you take into consideration Zechariah 12 through14, because it's so detailed that you can't to interpret it any other way is playing loose with the word of God. It says in Zechariah 12, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. I find that an interesting introduction to a prophecy. The burdening prophecy, a weighty revelation about what's coming upon Israel. This is history before it happens, folks. Number one, a global assault on Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup, kind of like a chalice, that causes reeling to all the peoples around. So everybody around them, Israel's neighbors, nations of the world, are going to come to the cup of Jerusalem and drink from it. And then the siege is against Israel, Jerusalem. It will also be against Judah, the land around it. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord. You know all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Does that include the United States? Maybe. I think that the more that Israel starts to dwell securely in this land like today, the more people see a Jewish problem, just like Hitler, and they're going to want a final solution to the Jewish problem. I think they're finally going to get the peace they've wanted. They're finally going to live securely in the land. And then people are going to come after them. Look at this. In that day, verse 4, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. And so you see a global force coming turning against Israel to attack them and wipe out its inhabitants. Uh, cross-reference that, Ezekiel 38. But Hitler, they, like Hitler, they offer this final solution to the Jewish problem. But the text says they're not going to get very far. They're going to get severely injured in trying to do so. This anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism we see today, it's not going to end well. Not for them. Jerusalem is like a cup that makes them stagger. God frustrates their plans like so many of Israel's enemies in the past. All you have to do is think of the Midianites and Gideon. If you touch Jerusalem, you're going to get burned. (laughs) Is what it's saying. Like a torch among sheaves. Sheaves coming in against the torch. That is Jerusalem. Secondly, we see a physical salvation of Israel. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first. Those are those living outside of Jerusalem. So that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God and like the angel of the Lord before them. So basically, God's going to deliver the small and the great in the land, in the land and in the city, and no one can say that they did it by their own power because they didn't. They realize at that point, surrounded by the nations, and the, the army of the United Nations, we might say, with Antichrist at the head, that they are completely dependent upon God. And they turn to him and God empowers them to fight like King David against Goliath. They're like the power of God upon their enemies and God himself will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The reference to the angel of the Lord there may very well be a reference to Christ who is actively involved. And we see number three, the spiritual salvation of Israel. Uh, so they experience a double deliverance, both physical and spiritual. Verse 9 says, "In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced." Isaiah 53, right? And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You guys remember when we were in Matthew 23 and Jesus said, You, Israel, won't see me again until you, Israel, say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's that until element there. Well, here it is. They finally welcome Jesus as their Messiah. They're forced from the position that they're in to come to him for help. And today, a lot of people don't think much of the modern state of Israel because they are mostly, of, well, for theological reasons too. But because but one of the reasons is because they're a secular state. Many of the Jews are secular. You know, they're, they're not in many ways, any better in the United States and the culture that they have. But if these prophecies are true, and if, when plainly understood, it's, it's significant in that they must be back in the land to experience these events. When will these things take place? We don't know. And I hope I'm never one to set dates. And I hope you aren't either. But in my mind... When you look at the modern state of Israel and you look at the things that have to take place, you've got to be thinking these things could take place at any moment. It's like the stage is set. And maybe it's a sign of the times, that the time's drawing near. And the attacks on Israel, like we saw back in October seventh, two 2023, are just a precursor of all of this, which is to come. You see the attitude there, right? Today, we don't see the Antichrist. But the spirit of the Antichrist is clearly there. Okay, today, we don't see the nations coming against Jerusalem, but we still see nations, neighbors coming against Jerusalem. You might not see the ultimate matter, but you see the precursors of it. Now, one of my, you know, if anything, what's going on over there and what we see ought to keep us sensitive. It ought to keep us on our toes looking for our Savior to come. Amen? I have a. A Bible teacher who said, since he could come at any time, we need to be ready at all times and be about his business and advancing the gospel. Amen? Verse 11 continues. Zechariah uh, 13. No, verse 11. Where are we at? Chapter, yeah, chapter 12 still, verse 11. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the morning of Hadidramon, in the plains of Megiddo, and the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself. You ever meet any, anybody with the last name Le- Levi? Levi? Is that, see that connection there? There's There's priestly blood out there still. Um, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. And in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. So that was a lot, right? But a fountain will be opened, a fountain of spiritual regeneration of cleansing poured out on Israel through the Spirit. They call on Him whom they have pierced with great contrition in their hearts to save them. And one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Zechariah 14, one you'll have to read on your own, speaks of Christ coming, defeating these nations who are gathered against Israel to battle the city that they've captured. Jesus is going to take it back. He stands on the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, he establishes his rule in Jerusalem. Zechariah 14.9 says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. What we've always waited for, right? Finally, he will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. And the saints will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. What a glorious moment. This is what we've been waiting for, the prophets say. This is when we see the full restoration of the kingdom to Israel and their place of prominence among the nations. The land of Israel, Zechariah 14, 10 through 11, is raised up and it's transformed. The nations who attacked Jerusalem are judged with plague and panic. The nations who don't go up from year to year to worship Christ during this age to come, it says, will, as a form of punishment, experience a lack of rain. Egypt is mentioned in particular. So Israel's secure, never to be uprooted again, and the nations, get this, the nations, not just individuals among the nations, but the nations are blessed alongside Israel. Israel. Syria, Israel, Egypt, there's a highway there. And they're all considered children of the king, essentially. But Ezekiel 40 through 48 speaks of a future temple in incredible detail uh, with a new worship calendar. The Dead Sea comes to life. People are fishing in the Dead Sea on the northwest banks of the Dead Sea. Um. And there's an allotment for the tribes in the land. Uh, In the first exile, you'll remember uh, God's Shekinah glory departing the temple. Do you remember when we talked about that? Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11. Ezekiel 43 and 44 say that the glory returns at this time. After all this has taken place in the millennial temple after Christ returns. So Jerusalem's no longer trampled underfoot. The times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled, right? The kingdom's restored. Christ fulfills everything. Not just through his first coming, but also through his second coming. This is what we're waiting for. And then you've got to think of our ultimate hope. What's our ultimate hope? To Live with God forever in our presence on a new heaven and a new earth someday. That's the ultimate hope. But in conclusion to this series, what are we to say? I think we can conclude that Israel's story is also our story. Israel's not perfect, are they? They never have been, not even since the Exodus. They've stumbled and fumbled more times than we can count. In fact, we scratch our heads thinking, why in the world did he choose them? And they scratch their head thinking, I wish I wouldn't have been chosen because of what they've been through. But, you know, so do you and I sometimes feel the same way. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. We're all prone to leave the God that we love. But just like Israel, a bellwether of God's faithfulness, God is covenantly faithful to us as well, showing us mercy, showing us grace, even when we don't deserve it. And none of us deserve it. And at the end of the day, we stand assured that he doesn't leave us, he doesn't forsake us, and that he always keeps his promises.